It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about black lies, white lies, and blue lies, lies that divide, lies that unite. We'll talk about the lies in politics and the politics of lying, historical examples, current practice, how is the present moment in American politics different from others in our history, or is it? What are the consequences for democracy? We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining me in the studio today is Dallas G. Dennery II. Dallas is the professor of history at Bowdoin College. He wrote the book, The Devil Wins, A History of Lying from the Garden of Eden to the Enlightenment. Thanks for joining us today, Dallas. Oh, it's nice to be here. Joining us on the phone is Nancy L. Rosenblum. Nancy is the Harvard University Senator Joseph Clark Professor of Ethics in Government Emerita with Russell Muirhead. She is co-author of the book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Happy to be here. From the Vietnam War through I didn't have sex with that woman to Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, Americans have not always heard the solemn truth from their elected leaders in either party. And that's not even scratching the surface of what goes on in political campaigns and political media where the truth can be stretched beyond recognition or disregarded altogether. But we seem to be in a new fact-free dimension of political discourse these days. What's going on? And what does it mean for the future of civil society? Uh, Nancy, let me put it to you first. How is the present moment in American politics different from others in our history, or is it? Uh, I think that there are significant differences. Um, To begin with, and everybody does begin here, we have a kind of, at, at the same time, the greatest access to knowledge, facts, and information, and and at once, the greatest kind of um, distortion of facts and information. And partly that's because of the Internet and social media that makes the spread both of information and of distortion costless and uh, easy. So that's one, one difference, I think. The other is that we're seeing now in politics, I think, a kind of lying and conspiracism that is different from what happened in the past. And um, we'll see if uh, uh, Dallas agrees with me on this. Because what we're finding now is a kind of bare assertion of some sort of conspiracy claim or the bare assertion and denial of a fact without evidence and without argument and often patently uh, refutable. So people are, especially in politics, and we're talking about politics, I assume, people are lying and making claims that can be refuted and yet they seem to be powerful. And believed. And, yes, and believed. And we can talk about why they are believed and why they are so powerful. 
What's the like big long human history perspective on this, Dallas? On on sort of the conspiracism and lying side of it of lying. Well, um, I think the the first conspiracy theory that I've located. I've been working on something I call bad history. Um, you can locate it to the 1700s, where there's a Jesuit uh, priest who comes up with this theory that every book written before 1300 is a forgery um, concocted by Benedictine monks hell-bent on destroying the Catholic Church. Um, And he creates this theory because Protestant scholars, he thinks, are undermining the truths of the Catholic Church. And so his response to this sort of um, academic inquiry is to create this conspiracy theory to try to rescue the status of the, the Catholic Church. So what I find interesting is at the very beginning of the Enlightenment, where allegedly we have this turn to empiricism and, and an interest in factual data, we also have what I think is the very first of these sorts of attempts at conspiracy theories to uh, work against those facts. Why do you think those two were coincidental like that? Because I see some parallels today in my own mind. Well, I, I actually would like to hear Nancy um, – talk about what she means when she says uh, she has this great phrase in an essay of hers I read called people are talking and and I do wonder if the way history works requires a lot of people are talking acceptance and once you start having too much actual investigation into the truth um, you learn that what people were saying isn't true but then the sorts of important values that those stories held up for a society um, wither away and then you just get people arguing with each other, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. What do you think? I, yeah, Nancy. I think I, I think that does make sense and it's interesting. But I'd like, if I could, to answer your historical question in a different way. You know, lying is, is as old as politics. And it's interesting to, to see that it's not always been despised. That is, there are many classic political thinkers who make arguments for the necessity of lying. That you, if you're involved in politics, you have to get your hands dirty. And the best we can hope for is a, is a leader who will lie efficaciously and for the public good. Give us some examples but, of that, Nancy. But, That's intriguing. The great, the great political philosopher on lying is Machiavelli, right, who says that in, in a world of evil, you have to do evil to survive. And the best that you can do, as I say, is a kind of economy of violence and lying. Now, in demo- once we have representative democracy, I think that kind of position is a very difficult one to sustain, although some people try to. They will allow for some kinds of secrecy in government, but not for lying. And so in democracy, we have a, not so much a, a claim, a, a desire for truth as a desire for transparency and publicity. And uh, the idea is that if we have transparency and publicity, we'll keep our uh, governors uh, accountable. Uh, We'll be able to correct errors. And it's a kind of respectfulness for uh, citizens and their common sense to uh, have a free press and open records and FOIA and so on. Nancy, when you use the word publicity in that context, you're not talking about commercial ads or press relations or no no i mean uh the press and the availability of uh knowing how government is operating and why and who's doing what and who votes where so that they can be held 
accountable. Mm-hmm. And, 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 the, go ahead. and the concern is not only lying. The concern is just secrecy and the kinds of corruption and uh, perhaps untruthfulness that it conceals. I mean, it seems to me just from my generation and the examples that I cited in our intro, I mean, there have been lies in the past, but it seems like there, at least in my generation, have been political consequences for that. Um, one of the things that seems remarkable is that there are no consequences in the current moment. Dallas, you're nodding your head. Go ahead. Well, yes, I, th- I think that's right. And I, th- I think one of the, the causes for this is sort of the the big sorts of narratives that we used to tell ourselves um, that creates this sort of broad framework of understanding of a state or a community, um, you know, the the greatness of the founding fathers or Thomas Jefferson as a spokesperson for human liberty um, has has sort of collapsed, right? And so it's hard to take Thomas Jefferson particularly seriously because, you know, he was – Abusing a, a fourteen, man, well, he right. was abusing a fourteen-year-old. That even people in France were scratching their like, "What is this man doing?" Um, and so, what happens is you ha- you have these sort of founding stories, myths um, that are really essential for telling a people sort of like, "Here's some of the things we value." Um, and over the course of the last hundred years, a lot of work has gone into debunking those stories. But when you debunk the stories, you quite often don't have anything in their place. And so then you get to this point, I think, um, where you can get this kind of division and rancor where where people need to sort of create their own stories or hold on to the stories they they like. Um, it's a very complicated situation because on the one hand, I don't think we want to believe lies. You know, we don't want to believe you know, the, the best story. You know, for, for a century, Christopher Columbus is held up as uh, you know this rationalist who's convinced he's not going to sail off the end of the world, as a, even though everybody else thought he was going to. It turns out Washington Irving made that story up out of whole cloth in the 1840s. Like everybody in the world knew the world was round, right? Um, but that story, the myth of Columbus, it, it motivates and around it, you can kind of congeal these ideals. Once you debunk it, you lose that. Right. And it's hard to replace another thing. Like facts don't replace the sort of mythic quality. That, that, that's where I would come in on this. I mean, that, that comment on that, Nancy. I mean, so George Washington did not chop down the ter- cherry tree. Maybe he did or did not tell a lie. But the, these founding myths help us all believe in a common thing and once that common belief goes away is that part of what's happening here i I think it is and when you replace these uh narratives that become sort of our common property and to which we can appeal and rest our values on when you replace those common narratives with narratives that are not just partisan but really um uh that are competing narratives that see the other side as an existential enemy, then um, you, you've, uh, you've eliminated the sort of ground of thinking, the, the common grounds of thinking that allow us to govern and make uh, decisions that make sense. But I, I would like to go back to your no, no, um, no consequences of lying. And uh, the, the short answer to that is a political answer to that. That is, when political officials lie today, there's such 
party polarization that the other party um, indulges it, that they indulge what their own leaders will do. And we see this clearly with President Trump and the number of lies he tells. And if I could just make an aside here, are these lies? That is, if you're saying something that's so easily refuted, like uh, I'm not a sexual predator and that you have the access Hollywood tapes available, then is it lying? Or is it kind of falsehood that's doing other business than lying? Because a liar really wants his or her audience to believe the truthfulness of what he says. Whereas it's not clear that the politicians today want you to believe that what they're saying is true as opposed to wanting your assent to it, your validation of it through repetition and assent. And that's different from true belief. And I wonder if it's validation of the story, the lie, or validation of the teller. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think the, the phrase that we use to explain people who, you know the conspiracy theory, Pizzagate? Let me use that as an example. It's a great one. Probably your listeners do, right? It's the idea that Hillary Clinton runs a, a child sex ring out of the basement of Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C. And, and it's repeated all over. And it's even repeated by public officials. And all kinds of people agree to it and amplify the story. They assent to it. They spread it. The validation comes from a lot of people are saying, now, do they believe that Hillary Clinton is running a child sex ring? What, what it is for them is true enough. It's true enough. That is, Hillary Clinton is so evil. She's such a traitor. She's such an uh, offense to the nation that... Um, it could be, it's plausible, it's true enough that she runs a child sex ring out of the pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. And true enough is, a, a, it's, it's very important, true enough, assenting to it is true enough is a kind of political identity, and it's a kind of political participation. So I see assent to these, what we could call lies or to conspiracy theories or just to incessant falsehoods as a kind of political participation today. Huh. And so do you think the political consequences are, um, I mean, in, in some sense, the political consequences are the success of the binding loyalty um, to, Good. right? Well, I absolutely think that's right. Well, it, uh, it, it also seems like what, what's being offered is a sort of story, um, that a group of people can all assent to and and say, this story sort of matches my vision of the world, so I can accept this um, as as possible because this is the kind of world I think exists. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you do either of you ever listen to Rush Limbaugh? I don't listen that much, but I have. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, doesn't this? sort of happened on his show where somebody calls in with something preposterous and then he says, what do you think about that? And then somebody else calls in and says, my, yeah. And then by the end of the show, everybody's saying this is true and it must my, be true. My favorite moment of that, I was listening to him once and he was infuriated that the Democrats had elected a guy named Sherrod Brown to office and, and were making him so important because obviously he's African-American. <laughs> he had a whole show devoted to Sherrod Brown's or Sherrod Brown's African-Americanness when, of course, he's like a 
white Caucasian. Right. <laughs> the whole the whole listenership was calling in an agreement. <laughs> so, and Rush Limbaugh is, in a sense, an almost benign version of something important that's going on, and that you've put your finger on, which is that we now have in the spreading of falsehoods and conspiracism and denial of facts and so on, an entire set of entrepreneurs who make a living doing this. And the internet, social media, and YouTube allow them to do it. So it is a big business spreading fantastic denials of fact and conspiracy claims. And there's a way in which it, it, it will be um, a, a sort of degradation of public culture and society for that to be going on. But it wouldn't matter that much for democracy. What matters for democracy is when the people <laughs> spreading these denials of fact or lies or conspiracy claims without any evidence or argument, like the election is rigged, where it's coming from uh, people in power, yep. but coming if- from the Oval Office and um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther with the League of Women Voters of Maine. We're having a great conversation this morning on black lies, white lies, and blue lies, lies that divide, lies that unite. Our guests this morning are Dallas Dennery, professor of history at Bowdoin College, and Nancy Rosenblum, the Harvard University, Senator Joseph Clark, professor of ethics in politics and government emerita. Um, we're uh, talking about... Um, the spreading of lies, the industry around lying, the enterprise and entrepreneurship uh, selling lies, and then the difference between that and having the uh, lie teller actually be the head of government. Um, and Dallas, I know you wanted to jump in on that. Yeah, so I just ahead. wanted to hear Nancy's thoughts on, on, on this issue because it does seem to impart, I mean, Rush Limbaugh might be a, a minor player, but um, – that kind of media it, it, uh, um, has an enormous influence and it, it, it influences the listeners and the listeners in turn are then primed for politicians to appeal to these things. So in a way, it, it, it seems as if the, the political consequence is almost inevitable um, given uh, the kinds of media broadcasting that develops, especially in the wake of getting rid of the fairness doctrine, don't you? I absolutely don't mean to say that it's innocuous. It has very destructive effects, yeah. and it's degrading of, uh, of people. I'm just saying that two things. One is that compared to some of these entrepreneurs out there, and I'm thinking in particular of Alex Jones. Oh, I see what you he's, mean. He's the one who says that the, the Sandy Hook massacre never happened, that the grieving parents are crisis actors being paid by Democrats to uh, fight guns. The, it's, it's a much more um, vicious. It, ha- it, it provokes violence in a way that I think Russia Limbaugh doesn't. And um, a, a lot of the people who are spreading these things on the, um, on the Internet and through social media are listening not so much to Rush Limbaugh as to worth. Mm. And but- my, my other point was, was really that where it enters politics directly, and I could talk about how that happens, uh, is, is when it's coming from people with power. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Well, no, do, do talk about how that comes in directly, Nancy. Well, if, 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 for example, President Trump simply lies 
or even if he makes conspiracy claims that are unwarranted, and even uh, that are unwarranted, it's, 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 as I say, a degradation of this time political culture. Um, but what's important is the way in which people in power who tell these lies uh, can actually put them into action. That is, it's not just a conspiracy claim that he makes. He uses it to delegitimate foundational democratic institutions. And so we see him, we can talk about this some more at greater length if you like, but we see him delegitimating just about every knowledge-producing institution, from the National Intelligence Services to the civil servants who do the birth certificates in Hawaii, right, who, who he says forged Obama's birth certificate, um, and the delegitimation of political opposition. Well, and, and I mean, is, entire, yeah. I was just going to say, I hear you say that, and I think about how in um, the politics of resentment and some other political science thinking, um, there's sort of an anti-university, anti-intellectual um, thing happening there. So is that part of it, just all yes, the knowledge? There's, yes, there's, there's no knowledge-producing institution that isn't being uh, attacked. Climate change is a hoax. The scientists aren't allowed to put their data on public websites anymore. Um, the uh, the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics statistics on unemployment are phony. Uh, the the uh, head of the Federal Reserve is uh, a, a traitor. He's more a public enemy than the premier of China. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And when you have this delegitimation, and, and delegitimation is not just mistrust. What you're doing and what has been effectively done for all kinds of government agencies now is delegitimation means that they no longer have any meaning or value or authority. Yeah. And uh, he's doing that with uh, and not just Trump alone, but uh, others who are denying facts and who are telling lies and who are making conspiracy claims about a deep state having invaded all of these agencies. They're... they're um, it's very serious. It's delegitimating these institutions so that people will not um, believe the knowledge that they're producing. And we're seeing this wholesale today. It's really quite extraordinary. I, I, as you say that, I'm wondering if this is a strategic part of a vast small government agenda, where if you can drive down people's faith in government and government institutions, it withers away. I mean, is do you think this is being strategically deployed, or do you think this is just, um, well, I don't know what. Yeah, there's a, that's, a, that's a hard question to answer because it requires reading of minds. But I, l- let me say this. I do think that there is a, a um, congruence, an alliance between this degradation of knowledge-producing institutions and uh, an ideology that wants unravel government, mm-hmm. you know, to, to undo these agencies, especially regulatory agencies. I think that is a, it is a kind of working alliance today. But I do think this conspiracism and this lying is available to, to others, right? It's not necessarily the kind of contingent connection today. And I would say that another way of looking at it is to say that this lying and denial of facts and conspiracism is a much more dangerous attempt to what I call owning reality. They want to own reality. 
they want their account of what's real to be um, acted out you know, in, on the nation. I mean, uh, it, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I want to ask, I mean, is it just happening in the U.S. or is there a broader landscape of fact-free discourse? I mean, Holocaust deniers, for example, are um, very vocal in other countries. You know, there are other places where similar stuff goes on, Dallas. Well, I, just within the United States itself, um, there's a scholar, Naomi Oreskes, who's done a lot of work on climate denial. And one of the things she's noted is the the, the, the initial major climate deniers who got in place in government were actually already working to prove tobacco was not cancer-causing when it was well-known. It was already as far back as the 50s. And it was already tied into all sorts of Cold War concerns. So, so the roots of a lot of the major players – and this sort of delegitimizing. And the United States goes all the way back to the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not even a, a recent phenomenon. Um, and, and as for people wanting to deny truth all over uh, in conspiracies, we certainly see it with Holocaust deniers um, around the world. Um, and we see it in other countries, um, particularly in association with white nationalist movements who are trying to rewrite history so that, you know, the story of the Vikings in the Middle Ages is about some proud – Nordic, pure white people who, you know, good Caucasians descend from. Um, and so these sorts of false conspiratorial narratives are arising in a number of places um, around the world, in the West especially, which is what I could speak to. Well, why do you think that's happening right now? Well, I think there's a, there's a lot of possible reasons. Um, <laughs> I think if I were to pick a a moment in the United States that I think moves Trump forward. I think it was the financial collapse and Obama's decision to support the big banks um, and bail out the banks, which gave a perception of everybody else being left behind. And that's the moment where Occupy Wall Street shows up and it's the moment uh, where the Tea Party starts to show up. And those are both populist reactions to what is clearly perceived on my part as sort of government taking care of itself, which opens the door to this kind of thing in the United States at least um, in terms of political right. interests. What do you think, Nancy, why this moment in U.S. or world history is opening up this kind of um, dynamic? I, I agree with everything that Dallas has said and people have traced this to um, – well, they trace conspiracism in this kind of um, pattern line generally to social unrest of some kind or another, to the loss of social status, to the kind of populism that wants um, that that, uh, that is suspicious of elites and government and, and so on. So I think that we, we, there are all kinds of social and political and economic, as Dallas points out, uh, sort of things going on that we could, you know, uh, attach this lying and this conspiracism, too, I would shift the ground a, a little bit. Um, I would say, from what I know, and I'm not a comparativist, there's conspiracism going on everywhere, but it's taking a somewhat different form in the United States. That is, there has always been, and there is still, around Brexit, for example, or Turkey with uh, President Erdogan or whatever, what we traditionally call conspiracy theories. And conspiracy theory is a kind of reasoning that's very familiar to us. And some conspiracy theories really are true, so we shouldn't disparage it entirely. But conspiracy theory is, is detective work. It tries to explain an event by 
looking at all kinds of evidence and facts and finding patterns and seeing, saying that what you think you know you don't know and what you think is real is not real, and here's the evidence for it. And sometimes the evidence is warranted and sometimes the evidence is not. But conspiracy theory is a kind of thinking that we can recognize and is theoretically at least refutable. What's going on in the United States is, is something really quite different. It's, it's what we were talking about before. When, when If the president tells a lie, it's a, it's a lie that's patently a lie that can be easily refuted. If, um, if, if there's a conspiracy claim, it's not with evidence and patterns and arguments. It's a, a single word, rigged. The election is rigged. And there's nothing more you have to say than that. And why it is that it's taking this form in the, in the United States and that why conspiracy theory, the old-fashioned kind, goes on. People have conspiracy theories about 9-11, and Democrats have conspiracy theories about dark money in politics, and some are true and some are not true. But what's happening in public life today is not that. What's happening in public life today is a kind of bare assertion whether it's an assertion that's a lie, a denial of a fact, or a bare assertion about a conspiracy and a, uh, and, and, uh, a treasonous party that, you know, the Mueller investigation is, a, is an attempt at a coup against the president. It's, not, it's a different kind of reasoning. It is it, not evidence and argument that we can recognize. Dallas, go ahead. Yeah, I, I liked your expression earlier um, when you talk about this as a sort of world-making on their part, and it and it does seem to me. I, I'm speaking as a as a practicing historian. Um, it does strike me that there's something of the sort of mythic. If you think about how they go about talking about the world, as if they want to create um, a story that will then become the framework in which they get to explain everything, which is really what myths do, right? They they provide these big narrative explanations that are taken because people have said so, to take the phrase that you used in your essay, or people people are talking, um, that then get accepted as the as the sort of truths around which they can organize a society how how they want to. And and it's just the thing I find interesting about this is really all national histories operate this way to some extent. Um, we all have to sort of take some things on faith when we tell a story, you know, about our past. Um, but the way the practice of history developed and the way investigation developed, all those sort of take it for granted sort of things get clarified. And as they get clarified, the values they held up disperse and become untenable. And so you're sort of left in a position of you can just keep debating more and more facts or you just say, I'm going to create a new vision of the world. And and that's, I mean, at a sort of meta-historical level, that's what I see going on um, with with what with the kind of political situation that we're talking about right now, because it's always about the American story, right? At some level, it's you know we're 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 a white nation, or we're a Christian nation, or we're this kind of a nation, and uh, and defining those 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 boundaries. I think Dallas, this is a wonderful point. I think it's exactly right that when I say that uh, people want to own reality. They are trying to create a reality that is not only divergent from the self-understandings that we have as a nation now, but that are um, mythic uh, uh, and, and even, see if you agree with this, and even in a sense apocalyptic. Oh, yes. The, 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 
if you take the most important conspiracy claim going on out there today, it's called QAnon, and maybe your listeners will have heard of QAnon. It's a, 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 a vast conspiracy claim with vast numbers of followers that say that um, President Trump is actually the hero of the moment, that there's going to be a point at which he's going to get all the bankers, all the criminals, or Hillary Clinton, all the liberals, all the people who are trying to replace White, that, he, that John F. Kennedy Jr. is going to come back to life, that he was never really dead, but that he's going to come back and work with Trump to have this moment of fire and fury in which all of these people will be imprisoned and turned around and the, uh, there will be carnage, but out of this will come uh, a, great, a great America again. Now, if this is a bizarre fantasy with all kinds of you know, little fantastic bits like John F. Kennedy Jr. coming back, but um, it is a kind of apocalyptic story. And if you take all of these little lies and all of these um, conspiracy claims and you see it against the background of something like QAnon, you're getting closer to what I think Dallas is getting at. That it is a kind of heroic mismaking and even apocalyptic because first we're going to have to suffer and then we'll come out on the other side. Wow. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Dallas Dennery, professor of history at Bowdoin College, and Nancy Rosenblum, the Harvard University Senator, jo- Senator Joseph Clark Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government Emerita. Um, today, our topic is Black, White, and Blue Lies, Lies That Divide, Lies That Unite. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line so that others can participate. And don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. Um, So... Continuing, you wanted to jump in there, Dallas, so go ahead. Uh, I, I just wanted to add one other thing to Nancy's comment, which is very interesting. Uh, her comment was interesting. <laughs> Everyone else can judge about what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's interesting, though, is when you talk about sort of um, the democratic values we all accept or we think we accept, it's hard to know what those are anymore because, in fact, so many of them have been demonstrated not to have been true or as simple. So, you know, the the American Revolution as sort of a fight for freedom, you know, really when you realize that the vast majority of uh, signers of the Constitution were slaveholders, for instance, it starts to put a lot of those uh, shared values in question. It's as if more – I mean the, the horrible thing of it in my mind is that in some ways the more we learn, the less easy it is – for a society to hang together. Uh, and I'm certainly not saying I want to believe lies about the past, but I, I think it's really important to understand that knowledge is good, but the consequences of knowledge can also have a lot of unintended um, side effects, which and some of them can, can be quite uh, fragmenting. Yeah. I mean, and the other th- question I wanted to ask you both about this moment is, like, if this is almost a culture war or a warring of visions or a, a 
challenge to identity. I mean, is this a symmetrical or an asymmetrical endeavor? I mean, I, what do you think? Uh, on on the parts, like in terms of how the battle gets waged? Well, I mean, we're talking about yeah. this particular use of lies or alternate myth-making or fact-free storytelling, whatever, as a political tool that's right. being used in some quarters. Is it being equally deployed on both sides is what I'm asking. I mean, I, I would – my a suspicion would be that, that people, let's say, who don't support Trump and his things um, have what I would consider a more reality and fact-based um, – view of things. Uh, the other side, of course, disagrees with that, but then you want to point to facts themselves, which don't seem to hold so much weight at some point. Well, that, I mean, so I, I, I've seen this happen in person. You know, somebody's getting up and talking about this, that, or the other thing, and, you know, one side says this about conservative bias and fact-stretching, and somebody will get up in the audience and say, like, what about the liberal media? They lie all the time, right? And um, that gets me to this one question that I had from the old Cary Grant movie. Are you a truthful white foot or a lying black foot? And how can you tell the difference? I mean, can people, if you really don't know who to believe, like how do you get yourself out of this, <laughs> Nancy? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know quite where to start here. I don't think that there's a symmetry of right and left in this country. I, I, as I said before, I think that the left and progressives have all kinds of conspiracy theories, some true, some mixed, which is always baffling, and some untrue. And if you read books about dark money in politics, or if you read books about, um, uh, or, or there are left versions of that 911 was not, uh, uh, you know, 18 men coming out of a corner of Afghanistan, but or the CIA killed JFK. I mean, there were a ton of those, right? Right. So there, there are lots of conspiracy theories coming from the left. And, but as I say, conspiracy theory has a kind of reasoning to it that we can recognize, which is evidence and argument. Sometimes the evidence is unwarranted. Sometimes the argument that you draw from the evidence is unwarranted. But sometimes it's true. There are all kinds of what I'll describe as progressive conspiracy theories. Progressive politics, you could say, in a way, is always involved conspiracy theories because what you're doing is re-looking at the past and unraveling what really happened. If you look at the, the progressive, the re actual progressives at the turn of the century in the United States, they were they unraveled banks and monopolies and smoke-filled rooms in order to bring us a more democratic politics. So conspiracy theory is always with us, and it is left and right, and it can be progressive and it can be true. But what we're seeing today is not this kind of old-fashioned conspiracy theory or classic <laughs> conspiracy theory. What we're seeing is some sort of bare assertion or innuendo without any kind of reasoning. It's a claim to this is what reality is, and look at all of the people who are repeating it and affirming it. A lot of people are saying that's the validation of it. Right. Isn't it's a that social validation, not a scientific validation? And isn't that just captured in Sean Spicer holding up the uh, photo of attendees at the inauguration and telling people that what they're looking at isn't what they're seeing? That, that is a perfect. <laughs> that is a perfect. That is a perfect example. And but but it, it 
it's not a laughable example because it really is a, a, an illustration of what I'm calling the claim to own reality. And it, 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 when the first, when John Spicer repeated that it was the largest crowd in history and that the National Park Service had doctored the photograph, he wasn't exactly lying. It was an act of submission. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people submitting to this claim to own reality. It's something that that Hollow wrote about terrifically when you know in his his great essay. Hey, we have a caller on the line. Star from Trenton. Go ahead. Hi, I really appreciate this topic because it's so maddening. Um, it reminds me of the movie with Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. Um, you know, <laughs> gaslight. Um, uh, so that, um, I'm skipping on that, sorry. Um, but the reason I called was because I, um, I, you know, when you bring up the delegitimizing of institutions, uh, science, professionalism in general, um, my, I always like to get to the solution part of a discussion. So, um, you know, dismissing... Uh, of the fact checkers and journalism as fake news, um, what does that leave uh, the uh, citizens and voters who are so vulnerable to this persuasive... Somebody got the radio on. Star, have you got the radio on? Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. Here, let me turn it off. Yeah, thanks. Oh, much better. Go ahead. (laughs) Finish your question. Sorry. That's right. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, you know, what does that... uh, Oh, uh, leave us in the way of, you know, um, getting back to the norm of, you know, of trusting in any institution, uh, you know, journalism or, I mean, this is what informs the public. Yes, yeah, Star? Yes. You, you were getting a lot of beat feedback on your on your line. Can oh, you I'm wrap sorry. up your call and we'll answer it offline? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Well. Uh, so how do we get back? I think that was the bottom line of what Star is. Can we work our way out of this? Or uh, I, I guess the first question would be if is is a sort of forecasting the future question, which is simply if a, if a, somebody who isn't Donald Trump is elected president in the next round, um, are the changes he affected insecure enough that norms come back into play? Right. That that would be the first question. And if the norms come back into play, um, then perhaps we're in a better situation. But Nancy might have some other thoughts on this. Well, I, I think that's right. You know, I, I, people are always asking what to do. And my co-author and I have written and talked an awful lot about speaking truth to lies and conspiracy and um, uh, having sort of... Um, uh, what we call an acting democracy, where we, politicians explain exactly why they're doing it and how the rules work and what normal order is. But in the end, I'm with Dallas. I think that you will affect quite a bit by your vote. Hmm. And that if you get rid of Trump, you're getting rid of um, a, a, a big source of this, because presidential conspiracism is not like anything else, because it comes with the authority to derail and hijack and invent government institutions. But it it will not disappear. I think it's now become a part of politics in America. I I think it's available for use by all kinds of parties. And I think that, again, Dallas put the question right, and so did your caller. Because once 
we know a lot about legitimate institutions, and we know we're beginning to learn something about how you delegitimize institutions and what you thought was a stable regime. But we don't know anything about re-legitimating things. Yeah. I mean, we are in absolutely <laughs> new, new territory. And yeah. uh, my guess is that there's a significant, small but significant part of the population for whom the damage is done. Well, and, what, and if some of this is coming out of um, dislocation of social media, analog anarchist, sorry, my producer is trying to tell me something and I'm not sure what, oh, we have a call. Analog anarchist is on the line. Go ahead with your call. Oh, hi. Good morning. Good morning. I just Congratulations to... on the uh, alliteration, by the way. Right, like... <laughs> alliteration. <laughs> Very good. Uh, audio quality. Now, I'm not a supporter of Rush Limbaugh. I don't agree with most of what he says. That man talks on a, on a ribbon microphone. I've, I've been through this with David Barsamian and, and uh, Ralph Nader. Their shows, when, when they come on, it's, it's all digital and it's all cell phone quality. Uh, uh, your listeners have to, have to uh, uh, it's called listener fatigue. You have to replace the missing parts of, of the sound. That means that you, you, you'll be preaching mainly to your own audience. When, when Rush Limbaugh gets on there, his voice is clear. You don't have to, uh, uh, your mind doesn't have to fill in the missing parts. And you could, you, you could listen to him with your other side of your brain, in other words. And that's what the popularity is. And, and that's why we're, we're getting so polarized here. And it's, I, th- I think it's got a lot to do with audio quality. But interesting you mentioned so, that because we've had our issues with audio quality on the show today, right? But I've never heard anybody say that this problem can be fixed by an engineer. Yep. Well, and, and it, to the extent that some of this is being caused by underlying economic dislocation or by um, a huge media transformation, um, you know, how much of this can is really just going to continue off on the the side regardless of who's elected. So um, to bring it back specifically to the question of lying, what makes lies possible in human beings is that we can think something but say something else, right? So you can hide your thoughts. It's pretty obvious. Um, What happens with each new form of media is that degree of hiding yourself is exacerbated or extended. And the amazing thing about the internet and all the technologies we have now is that the the actual distance from the from the thinking to the expression and the consequences for misspeaking uh, are highly mitigated because it's not like you're lying to someone face to face. And so there some some scholars have who have looked at this have said that the lying is actually facilitated by this media, mm-hmm. right? Because Typical reaper, like you asked earlier, how do you tell if someone's lying? Well, the problem with the internet is you're not looking at someone's face and you can't see them blush. Um, they're not even someone you know through another person who you can talk to. And so that level of mediation between speaker and, and message uh, makes the consequences of lying very minimal. And it seems like there's little to do about it. I want to just take one more break and we're going into the last few minutes of our show. Um, You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU this morning. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests are Dallas Dennery, professor of history at Bowdoin College, and Nancy Rosenblum, the Harvard University Senator, Joseph Clark, professor of ethics in government, 
and Politics Emerita. Um, we are taking, we, this may be our last call, but we have Frank from Lemoyne on the air, and you can then call in 866-625-9378. We may have time for one more after Frank. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, I'll be 74 here in November. And, and Congratulations. And I haven't been lied to about my birthday, I don't think. <laughs> but everything else, is, I mean, politicians have lied since, like, the guy who was talking about Tommy Jefferson and those guys, all the white privileged boys, they all lied. The whole thing's a lie. Being facetious, and this is—I'm not a Donald Trump fan whatsoever. Uh, but at least he's more truthful in his lying, because all he does is lie. <laughs> I mean, how many people have been killed over lies? The George Bush boys, the Vietnam guys, the Bill Clinton guys—all those guys, the Ronald Reagan guys, even the Dwight Eisenhower. I wrote a letter to in the fifties. They all lied. You can't be president of the United States or a politician, unfortunately, unless you lie. That. And my phone is an echo. There's no answer. There's no answer to the question. So it's not a question. It's just a rant. Oh, I appreciate the thought, though, Frank. And we'll let Nancy and Dallas comment on that, if you will. I, I, Frank, I began by saying uh, that the notion that if you're going to be in politics, you're going to have to lie, that you can't always t- tell the truth. You're going to tell lies or you're going to tell a partial truth, which will look like lying, that that goes with the territory. And there are many philosophers and political historians who've talked about why that is. But the but is that we have something else now. And we have not just lies, strategic political lies, but we have a denial of fact. And when you have this denial of facticity, uh, where then, then you can't have functioning government. And what we're seeing is the breakdown of functioning government. So uh, apart from our our vote, which I understand you both to be saying is one of the main um, things that we should do as we think about the future direction of our country and our political culture, um, if you're an ordinary person... Yeah, you know, and actually, I'll just, oh, I'm ahead. sorry to interrupt you, but that sounds like such a trivial position to take. And a League of Women Voters position. And from right? a League of Women Voters person speaking, but... We have a son who's in his early 20s and we know a lot of his friends and 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 one of the problems of fact-free discourse and overt and blatant dishonesty among uh, – in, in the political classes is that a lot of those young voters don't think it matters how they vote then. And so it sounds like a trivial statement but in fact it's it's a lesson. It's like a civics lesson that that – is under attack as well because of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that there are very many people who think that right now, Dallas. To say it doesn't matter, this election, this presidential election, uh, you, you have to be sort of unconscious to what's going on. And the young people that I know and that I teach, and my daughter who's older than yours and my grandkids, I mean, people think it matters. Mm-hmm. This is not Ralph Nader saying, you know, that they're, one party is just like the other. I think we've, we're long past that point. Maybe, so I, yeah. uh, and I, I'm, I mean, there's sort of the institutional, the civic solutions, and then there are the personal ones. Like so, some of my friends are conservatives who are in this milieu, and it's difficult. I mean, how do you talk to somebody 
about facts and rationality when they are so addicted to the fiction. Uh, you had a show on this <laughs> on this station yesterday, actually, about talking about climate change. Right. <laughs> um, it's a tough one, and and one of the problems about starting the conversations is people don't want to hear the side that they disagree with. Right. Right. Because I think these are more about worldviews than factually. I think about this is what views, yeah. Nancy would agree with this. They're more about worldviews than factually based positions. We've got one more caller on the line, Fred from Tenants Harbor. You're going to be our last call today. Go for it. Okay. Comment. Um, from my point of view, The uh, let me turn my radio all the way off. Thanks. Uh, the distance, so to speak, uh, from you and I as uh, individual citizens to uh, the, pres- the uh, White House and the national government is so great that, uh, you know, I've been noticing it uh, um, becoming more difficult and more less real communication from top to bottom as decades have gone by. And now, um, with Mr. Trump in the White House, um, sometimes there's total disconnect, and uh, sometimes, sometimes not. But it's the uh, this so this figurative distance, and it bodes. Uh, I, I remember the term bioregionalism and uh, uh, eleven nations of North America, and then and, and then our main writer who wrote nine nations of North America, and it would be a good time to uh, uh, quote uh, you know uh, regionalism more yeah. than uh, national government. Thanks very much. Thank you. Does culture and regionalism play into this, do you think? I understood the caller to say that it plays into it too little. Uh-huh. That is what we have now is really the nationalization of politics and the, the closeness that you used to be able to feel to your congressperson in your district as representative of you and your interests has been lost with the, the nationalization and the polarization of politics. Mm-hmm. Well, we're um, running out of time this morning. I want to give you each a moment to make a few final reflections before we um, close out the show. Dallas, let's go to you first. Um, <laughs> some final reflections. Um, I I guess I would, I would, I would think that the, the problem we face uh, really concerns the lack of any generally accepted um, story or framework um, within which we can um, uh, adjudicate our disagreements and that what you have instead are people with radically different conceptions of what the country is, um, where we should be going and perhaps a relation to facts. Uh, and unfortunately – um, I'm not sure, aside from political change, which might render a lot of this much more um, mellow, um, I'm not sure what sorts of practical steps people could take to overcome it right now. Uh, I, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist on, on that particular um, mm-hmm. point. I, For instance, I don't think it's enough to work on like civics education in schools because that just becomes another battleground, right? Yep. That, in fact, that's the source of a lot of the battleground is civics education in schools. So it's, it's, a very tough, it's a very tough problem to deal with. Nancy, final thoughts or reflections? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I focus on something different. I've spoken about the 
consequences of all of this, uh, the delegitimation of institutions. But I think that there's an even an equally important consequence, and that is what's dividing us is not so much stories, although I don't think that Dallas is wrong about that. What's dividing us is something really very profound. It's, we're divided about what it means to know something. What does it mean to know something? Is it that a lot of people are saying it, or is it a matter of certain kinds of evidence and argument? And if we lose, if too many of us think that it doesn't matter about evidence and argument and fact, that what it means to know something is just whether it's repeated and assented to, then, then we are not going to have a democracy or a functioning government anymore. And what you get with evidence and argument is the possibility of self-correction and a kind of respect for your fellow citizens by offering argument. And uh, I think we still have that for the most part, but it's being really challenged. And if it dies, if, if it's just a matter now of uh, assent and repetition and owning reality, um, I think that it's the end of democracy. Would you offer any personal resolutions to our listeners? Well, I, 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 no. I think you have to defend knowledge-producing institutions. I, have to, I think you have to make arguments yourself. I think you have to vote. There, There's no... Um, for individuals, that's what matters. And to think about what it means to know something. No shortcuts. We are running out of time this morning, so I want to say thank you to our guests Dallas G. Denry II, Professor of History at Bowdoin College, and Nancy L. Rosenblum, the Harvard University Senator Joseph Clark, Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government Emerita. It's been a great conversation. I really thank you both for coming on the show this morning. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. We'll be back in October, the third Friday in October, with another show. You can email us at downeast at lwvme.org. We'll see you here next month. Thanks a lot. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Ray Carboni Sculpture and Woodworking with wood, bronze, and stone sculptures at the gallery and workshop.